So Lisa, I've been following the amazing journey of Deion Sanders. And part of it is because I'm a little addicted to Instagram. <laughs> and um, Deion's son is actually um, documenting everything that's going on with his new role. Um, I want to say new, but two years in his new role as head coach of Jackson State's football program. And so I've been following them on Instagram. They had a, a bar stool. Um, kind of series that were going on on YouTube that I watched. I watched the first season, the second season, and all the things. And I'm just pretty addicted to watching what Dion is doing now in HBCU sports because he's truly being this disruptor, bringing in all of his background, his experience, his accomplishments, and disrupting things on the level of HBCU sports, which we have always claimed to have been comparable to the you know Big Five, Big Ten. And so I thought we should talk about this because he gives us a really nice uh, entry to talk about being disruptive when it comes to equity, inclusion, uh, more so I would even say access, Lisa. So I think um, given my obsession with his Instagram uh, account, <laughs> we may want to talk about Mr. Dion here. Yeah, I think we should definitely, because per usual, I am behind and do not know all the details. So I would love to learn more. And I think disruption is a great idea for a topic today. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. We are so excited about TryHard's new active foot care kit. Lord knows my feet need plenty of TLC after what I put them through. Included in the kit is an active foot soak, active foot exfoliating soap, and active foot pre and post workout spray. The foot soak gently cleanses and dries out blisters while relieving pain, itch, and eliminating odors. The exfoliating soap, which includes a pumice stone, prevents calluses, eases pain, and prevents the formation of bacteria causing fungus. And last but not least, the pre and post workout spray prevents blisters and irritation. Just spray it on your feet before working out. Once you're finished working out, you can also use it to disinfect and deodorize your shoes and feet. It's self-care season, so go ahead and treat yourself to some try-hard products. Use the code STAYFEISTY20 for 20% off the active foot care kit or any other products at tryhard.co. That's STAYFEISTY20 for 20% off at tryhard.co. Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, Orca has fit-for-purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs. Innovation has always been part of Orca's DNA, and when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account. Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility, maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, Orca wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple. For 15% off all items at orca.com, use the code IRONWOMEN15. All 
right? So Lisa, I know one thing that you've kept up with is all of the water crisis that was going on in Mississippi. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, the, there was a lot going on with that where, you know, not having running water or the running water you did have was filthy, just not consumable, that type of thing. And so given that, what was really interesting was, once again, enter my dad. Let me tell you, my dad should be a journalist himself because he keeps up with all the things, right? And so, yeah, yeah, he he sent me this link um, that said, look at this. First of all, I didn't know that Dion was coaching now. And secondly, look at this man taking a bath in the uh, the university's pool. And I was like, what you talking about, daddy? He's taking a bath in the pool. What in the world? Black people don't do that. I mean, most people don't do that. Why would you take a bath in a chlorinated pool? Come on now. Well, what I realized was that Dion basically had no choice. You know, he had to go down to the pool, you know, lather up, take a bath, come out, dry off. They even had to take their trash cans and scoop water out of the school's pool to go flush the bathroom toilet just to go use the bathroom. That's how bad it was. Uh, Because of course, the campus is in the city. The city is experiencing these issues. And so, you know, try running an entire football team in the middle of a water crisis where they want to practice, they need to practice, they need drinking water, they need water to clean their bodies, all these different things. And so that's kind of how I entered into this notion of Dion and his disruption and what he's doing um, at Jackson State. And so for me, I'm like, this is very interesting because a lot of people are thinking, okay, this is uh Dion, primetime Dion, that's just doing a lot for show. He's used to a lot of attention. He was a big character and voice, even when he was playing. He's played in, you know, World Series and also in two Super Bowls. So, of course, he's a big name and a big uh, personality. But this is different, Lisa. It's very different when an African-American male is using a ton of privilege to bring a highlight to a sport that usually hasn't gotten as much uh, attention, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely familiar with Deion Sanders, um, know who he is, familiar with his quote unquote work (laughs) in the NFL. Um, So I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about what he's done and why you think that he's disrupting the status quo and then what we can learn right from his behaviors from the from the things that he's done I mean obviously the folks that listen to this podcast are not you know multimillionaires because of a successful career in the NFL and then commentating and (laughs) on TV right so we don't have that level of privilege but I imagine what he's doing it goes well beyond just bringing money to the university Yeah, you know, I think, you know, what's so interesting is that, you know, one of the things that I do know, Lisa, because you and I have talked about this quite a bit, and that this even extends to endurance sport, is how few uh, people of color are in our sport, and specifically how few men of color are in our sport. And it's flip-flopped, obviously, in football, where African-American males, men of color are the majority in the sport. And so they're even more so the majority when you're talking about a historically black college. And so given that, I think it's interesting that Dion has been a disruptor since day one because he asked the question or posed the question, why is it that we don't have more recruiters going to HBCUs 
to find draft picks. Like, why are we not recruiting there? We're recruiting at all these predominantly white institutions, big five, big 10, big 12, but no one's looking at the, the SWAC. No one's looking at HBCUs. Nobody's looking at those particular schools because there is an assumption that the level of excellence will not be there. And Dion decided to call bullshit on that. And so, you know, when you say to the NFL, okay, well, why don't you hold a specific number of slots at the combine that can be filled by HBCU recruits? And they say no. And then you, and then Dion uses his immense privilege to say, okay, well, forget you, NFL. We'll just have our own HBCU combine. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the white boys in the front office start to scramble because they're like, oh, shit. Well, if he has his own combine, then that makes us look like fools because people will ask will ask why we didn't invite them to ours. So that is extremely disruptive. And you have to name it. You have to name it when you see it. And he chose to name it. Okay, so here I'm thinking from that example, there's a few things I would pull out. Right. So he has a belief that things can be different, right? That he is not willing to accept the status quo and the way that mm. the NFL or indeed the NCAA has relegated HBCU football to a lower tier that has less money, less support, less access, mm. um, and apparently no NFL recruiters, right? So he's like, yeah, that's not okay. So that belief, that vision, that lack of accepting the status quo. And then also I feel like he's pulling back the curtain a little bit there, right? You know, kind of um, he's uh, not exactly shaming kind of the, mm-hmm. the, the predominant mm-hmm. white elite related to these issues, but he's pulling back the curtain and saying, okay, then if you're not going to help us, then we're going to make it clear that people know that you're not going to help us, right? Oh, yes, 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 absolutely. And, you know, I love what you said about, you know, not accepting accepting the status quo because he's saying that the status quo is in fact inequity. The status quo is no one looks in the direction of the HBCUs and therefore there has been a huge wall created that is very hard other than the likes of a few like Michael Strahan and a few others. There are very few, you can almost count the number of athletes that came from HBCUs that go into the league. And so he had to name the problem before he could say, I'm no longer going to accept it. So he named, this is a jacked up system for recruitment. And then not accepting it. And then I'm imagining that he had a very clear vision of what he wanted to see, what would be equitable, what would be accessible. You got to have some really specific vision to even see that, you know? Yeah. I really appreciate you underscoring that naming, right? Because I think if you're going to be a disruptor, you're definitely thinking about systems, right? You're not necessarily thinking about individual behavior. So you're saying, how does this whole system of um, college football and its, you know, its connections to the NFL, how does that reinforce inequity among Black and African-American players, right? And so um, he's understanding that and then he's he's naming it and speaking it out loud, which is, is more than just having a belief and a vi- vision, right? Um, and I think that sometimes in endurance sport, perhaps where people trip up is because 
they don't know the extent of the problem. And so they're not able to name it. So they know there's a problem, right? And they they have an inkling that it's like more than just an individual person, that it's actually kind of a his, historically located systemic problem. But then finding the words and being able to name it and then developing a solution, I think that's where it can become really challenging. And it seems oh. like Dion Sanders, sure, he has connections and money, but I don't think you need both of those things to be able to name these problems and then figure out a strategy about how you. Oh, yeah. Them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, no, you definitely don't need money. Now, um, I would say money helps, but it's not a precursor to being a disruptor. Right. It, it does help because that's one of the things, um, Lisa, I think I, I shared with you. I'm going to um, I'm going to buy you a copy of this book. This is a shameless plug of this book um, by Rachel Rogers, a black woman. She wrote this book. We should all be millionaires. And the first chapter that she's talking about is how to. Uh, and as an aside, how to manage the shame that many women and people of color have been inundated with around money and what it means for being better disruptors, better allies, better social justice advocates, because it's one thing to say, uh, I think we should have more programs for uh, children of color in the arts. And it's another thing to write a check for what you just said. And so it's not to say that you can't speak to it, but you can speak to it and you can have influence in that area. And, you know, I'm in agreement around, no, you don't need the money, but it damn sure helps when it comes to influence. And that may be part of the status quo that we need to interrupt, because I think that's part of the status quo that we're interrupting with these HBCU players is that despite not having enough resources, despite uh, having fields that have golf divots in it so that your athletes are getting injured and rolling their ankles over. Despite the lack of resources, they still made it to the league. They still became professionals. They still overcame. What we're saying is that it would have been much easier to overcome if they didn't have those issues. And so how do we interrupt so that they do get more resources and they come from various places? So, you know, I I don't want to make it seem as if money doesn't matter. It does, but it shouldn't be a precursor to Mm -hmm. naming the truth. I think everybody has in their power to name the truth. Yeah, I agree. Right. You just have to want to see it is part of the problem. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So I would say another, another thing I would imagine the average disruptor has is, well, two things, but they're connected. So a high tolerance for risk-taking, right? Knowing that Mm. they could lose something by stepping up and stepping out um, and disrupting um, an inequitable system or process or practice. And so with that, there is comes courage, right? Because you might be the only one. Yes, yes, yes. Courage to take the risk and acknowledging Mm. that that could mean that there's personal loss, right? Um, Loss Mm -hmm. of sponsorship, loss of income, perhaps, um, loss of friends, loss of business partners. I mean, it would look different for everyone. And obviously not everyone is going to be able to take a risk that could include a loss of income. I mean, I understand that. Um, this is definitely in a different position there, but that risk, that high tolerance and that courage, 
I think that they're probably pretty key components. Do you agree, disagree? Do you see that in what he did? Oh, well, I, I do. But again, you know, it's it's interesting, right? Because depending on your station in life, that determines how much risk is even an issue, right? Like, you know, I don't see too much, uh, how can I say? I don't see too much risk-taking by Dion. Not that there isn't risk there, but given his level of power, it's not that much that he can lose. You know, like, that he he has his own homes, he has his own money, he has his family, um, you know, so there's not as much to lose versus, let's say, you know, you and I, for example, when, when I first came out of graduate school with my master's degree, I was making $33,000 as the director of a multicultural center. And yes, I spoke truth to power, but I was also shaking in my boots when that truth to power might make the difference between me taking a check home or not, because I was barely making it. Right. And so given that, that's not to let people off the hook, but it is a contextual consideration of how much risk are you taking versus Dion who's saying, shit, I'm doing this for fun right now. Like I'm, I've I've retired from two sports. I have homes. I have three different homes. I have money. I have real estate. I have power. I have all these other things. So this is like a passion project for me that's a different level of risk than probably the people listening to our podcast right now, Lisa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's gotta I mean, be different. That's true. But do you think there's not reputational risk if he rolls into um, mm. be a, a college coach and then totally bombs in terms of, I mean, I realize that's not the mm. same as, as financial risk, but do you mm-hmm. think there's any mm-hmm. of that there that he was, I mean, I guess we're mm. speculating, right? Since he's not on the show, we're not interviewing him, but you know, what if he yeah, was just yeah. really bad at it? Well, but you know what? That's a great point though, because so right now Jackson state is eight and O and they only have one more game before um, at the recording of this podcast. They only have one more game until they will be the first uh, team in Jackson State history to have an undefeated season in the history of the school. And so given that, you know, obviously there's, again, the privilege of winning because if, if he was losing, if the team had a losing record, he might not be able to flex the same way he flex right now versus we're undefeated. We're beating the pants off of everybody. These are not close losses of the other teams. These are like, you know, 15, 20 point losses. So given that winners can flex privilege that others can't. And so, you know, this kind of goes back to what we've said about endurance sport. It's one thing for Chelsea Sodaro, who's our new Iron Man champ to say we need to do more about uh, um, dependent care in order for our pros to be able to train and race. It's quite different for her to say it than you or myself way at the back of the pack saying the exact same thing because we've been saying it for years. Yeah, it's a different level there. There's a, and, yeah. and again, not to say that any of us should stop talking. All of us should keep speaking truth to power, but there is a different flex mm-hmm. when a brand new Ironman world champion can come across the finish, go kiss her baby, and then tell everybody, hey, this is the sacrifices my family made in order for me to even be here, and we need to consider it. That's quite different from other people. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you know, it's also, I know we talk about 50 women to Kona or now that we actually have 50 women at Kona, right? And this is a yeah. triathlon reference, obviously, but, um, you know, in the early days of pushing that message and uh, pulling the curtain back on the inequity there between men and women in the uh, world championships, there were a number of pro women triathletes who joined the movement, right? Who participated in the nonprofit Tri-Equal and who were interviewed in the press and were very public about their dissatisfaction with the lack of equity for women in the sport. And there's there's absolutely a risk to that. And as much as there were, um, you know, women taking that risk, there were other women pro athletes that wouldn't because they were too concerned about the reputational cost, about the loss of income from prize money and sponsors yes, and such. Yes. And they're all, they're all really legitimate, right? Um, yeah. So this isn't to say that they made the wrong choice, right? That's not, that's not the point here. But I guess there is something about the women who decided to step up anyway, right? Um, that is, you know, a, a trait of a disruptor, I think, um, you know, weighing, weighing the costs and knowing that there is going to be a cost and so be it. And certainly I don't know all of the backstory for every woman in the 50 women to Kona crew who decided to do that. Um, you know, so, you know, they could have been in markedly different circumstances than the folks or the women who decided not to, right? So there's some context here we don't have, but I do think there's something intrinsic. I do think there's something else going on there around my capacity to stand up, even if there's a cost to me, right? And that cost mm -hmm. isn't financial per se, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, the cost, it, it's interesting how those costs come up. Um, as you were talking, Lisa, I was thinking about... Um, so when I retired myself from university work last year, I sent an email that was, you know, how they send the formal announcement. Hey, this person has moved on to this, that, and the third. But I also sent an informal email to people I consider true friends that I worked with. And I literally detailed some of the costs of doing this type of work that are usually not considered and definitely not considered on, on college campuses. I mean, being called an uppity end to my face early on in my career um, from students and parents, um, you know, the microaggressions of always being considered, you know, someone that's in dining services when you're actually a vice president or someone with the title and power, having your, your property vandalized because, you know, I spoke up for LGBT students at a religious school. All those things are the cost of doing this type of work. And, and I think what, uh, you know, as much as I think that everyone should not have to deal with some of those costs that I and many others have dealt with much more. Um, I think that, you know, we would be naive to not consider that, yes, there will be a cost to you being a disruptor, whatever that cost may be, whether it's friendships, whether it's colleagues, whether it's um, people we quote unquote call haters, whether it's a job, whether it's money, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, there will be a cost to certain things. Um, and just to expect that cost to happen, um, at my, my friend and I, we used to say all the time, if somebody ain't pissed off while you're doing this work, then you're not doing it right because you're going to piss somebody off. And, and, and that is the cost. 
even if it's relationship, it's still cost of doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that, cause folks aren't going to be happy with you all the dang time because you're, you're often the villain, you know, and, and not okay, even the right. villain as far as like, I, I, you let me know what you think about this. I don't even think it's always the villain of, I don't agree with inclusion or I don't agree with whatever. Many times I think it's the how, you know, it's, I don't agree with how you're doing it. I think you're being too aggressive. You know, I mean, they even said that about Dr. King, you know, why this sense of urgency? And he wrote the book, Why We Can't Wait. I mean, come on, there's going to be someone who's upset with either what you're saying, how you're saying it, how you're not saying it. It's it's inevitable to be the villain at some point. And I, at some point I got okay with it. I wonder if Dion's okay with it. I wonder if our uh, 50 Dakona are okay with it. Uh, you know, I, I think that's, something that has to be kind of embraced as much as I wish it wasn't true, but here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I think that villainy, as you say, can look really different, but when you put yourself out there and you stand up and say, no, this isn't right. We need to change it. And you then take action to do that. That is, you're going to face resistance, right? So that's got to be an expectation because you're essentially turning the ship. Um, And when turning the ship might mean, (laughs) some change that people aren't used to, then that is going to put you in a position of being the villain, even when ultimately your outcome is, is good. Right. I mean, that's a bit simplistic, but I think Mm -hmm. that it's, gosh, they're all connected what we're talking about here, right? Like you have to believe that change is possible. You have to be willing to step up, to level up. You have to be willing to take a risk. You have to have the courage to take the risk. You have to know that there might be consequences, including you becoming the villain, right? And and people twisting what it is mm-hmm. that you say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that That's can right. come through your unfiltered communication. Um, yes, so yes, yes, yes. There's just this constellation of things, I think, that are have to be present for someone to step into that role of disruptor. And I'm not actually sure everyone is able to do it. And I don't, again, I don't mm. think it's just about the privilege that you hold in, I think there's more, I think there's something more intrinsic or deeper and being mm. able to be a disruptor. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, we have to really be careful with mentioning is that, you know, the level of courage that it takes to do the work regularly and publicly is something that we need to consider as well. And, you know, that courage sometimes takes, how can I say it? It takes time to muster up courage to develop that muscle, et cetera. But it does take courage because it is scary when you're the only or when you may be the only person that sees the vision in a certain way, or you're the only one that's willing to take the risk. You're the only one that's willing to say it. Like, Lisa, how many times have we said something in a damn meeting and then somebody sends us an email after the fact or they talking to us down the hallway? I'm like, you to say something in a damn meeting. What are you doing? It, but we still had the courage to do that. I think that piece is interesting around, you know, part of the process. I'm wondering if any of this matters, if there isn't the courage piece behind it. Cause I, I I'm, I'm thinking about right, how many right. people yeah. have these characteristics, you know, the belief in the vision, not accepting the status quo. All, they have all of those disruptive characteristics, but if they decide not to be courageous in their work, then it's almost like all oh, that's thrown out the window. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I also think that so courage is perhaps situational because I've definitely been in situations Ooh, where I, where I yes. haven't spoken up. Right. I haven't had the courage, but in others I have and I have paid a price for that. And so maybe my yes, lack of courage yes. in certain situations is a response to being villainized or being told that I'm aggressive or being told that I'm a bitch or something. Right. Because I'm trying to stand mm-hmm. up for what I think is right. Um, right. So it's not I don't think it I don't. I don't think to be a disruptor, your foot has to constantly be on the gas pedal because you also have right. to lick your wounds a little bit, right? You have to take yes. that time to refuel, re-strategize, revision, rethink, okay, this direction hit a bit of a dead end. So now what do I do? And mm-hmm. then so maybe that means that your foot is off of the disruption gas for a few weeks, right? Um, right, so right, right. I guess I don't want listeners to think that you have to there are these kind of both extrinsic and intrinsic traits. Yes. But you're also pretty adaptable to your environment. Right. So that probably means that Mm. your disruption strategy also includes knowing when to perhaps disengage a little bit. Right. So that you can kind Mm. of come back 10 times faster in another Mm. scenario. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good though. Your, your disruption strategy. I love what you just said, because the the disruption strategy, in fact, may be disconnecting for a minute, not giving power to certain things or not. Like, Lisa, I remember this is, gosh, how many podcasts ago where we talked about um, energy vampires, where we had to make a decision. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. How do we make decisions about who to engage with and who not to engage with? Because if we engage with this particular group or people, what have you, then Unfortunately, it zaps the in, the energy that we need to continue to remain courageous and maintain these other characteristics. And so disengaging in is in, in fact, a strategy in and of itself. Right. Um, you know, yeah. so I think that's a really good point, too. But, you know, with this, all, all I think I'm saying here is when it comes to disruption, I think, yes, specific characteristics help with being a disruptor. And the context within which you are disrupting will have some level of resistance, some level of, uh, I don't know if danger is the right word, Lisa, I'm kind of wincing as I'm saying danger, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's some element of danger, um, whether it's danger of, I might lose my reputation, lose my money, lose my job, lose a relationship, or we talk about it all the time here in United States place, social capital. I'm going to lose my buddy that I rub elbows with all the time because they don't think similarly to me. And so therefore I will no longer have that relationship. So yeah, I think all of that kind of becomes the backdrop of disrupting, but yet at the same time, Lisa, we're asking people to be more disruptive. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Right. We're always asking the hard questions and then explaining that it's not easy. It's complicated. It may hurt and you might get tired. (laughs) Now go do it. Right, right. Go do it. Go do it anyway. Uh, Well, there's the risk, right? There's the risk that you might engage with some energy vampires a little too often. (laughs) That's a risk. That's a risk of being a disruptor. Um, Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I I would also add that, you know, the example we've used today with Deion Sanders, you know, is very famous, very wealthy, has a lot of connections. It's very splashy and flashy, right? His disruption. It doesn't have to be that way. Right. There are small ways That's right. that you can That's disrupt. Right. But I think some of those traits that we outline still matter. They still they still apply. They just 
perhaps look different, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. They look different depending on the context. And so I, I feel like, Lisa, we may, um, we could possibly say that Dion's example of disruption is a very high profile, very attention getting, very clear example of disruption where we can take our own shades of disruption from his flashier version of it. Right. He's, he's called primetime for right. a reason. Right. Right. All right. So, look, we've got a hell naw and a hell yeah. Lisa, you want to start out with the hell naw because I had not completely mm-hmm. gotten up to speed on this one. So help me out. Hell yeah. Hell no. Yeah. So like my my re-engagement with all things um, U.S. Supreme Court and political science in the last few years has thrust me into the middle of some pretty intense Supreme Court terms. Last one, obviously, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, among other things. But this term is also shaping up to be quite the doozy. And yesterday, uh, October 31st, they heard oral arguments in two cases that are looking to overturn affirmative action in the college environment. So one involves the University of North Carolina, the other involves Harvard. Um, And the three uh, women justices, not including Amy Coney Barrett in this, the three other women justices, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson, eviscerated arguments um, from the more conservative side of the bench and also from the plaintiffs, I believe, the folks who want to overturn affirmative action uh, in in just, you know, phenomenal ways. I mean, um, there's probably too much legal minutiae here, and this is not what our podcast is about, but ultimately, Um, They shut down arguments around how much diversity is enough and is diversity really important in college admissions and why do we even need diverse campuses, right? Um, In in one particular interaction, Ketanji Brown-Jackson drew a a parallel between legacy admissions, which if you know anything about legacy admissions, they're at particularly places like Harvard, predominantly white uh, families who have been going to Harvard for forever, right? Because white people have never been prohibited from attending higher education. So obviously in 2022, if we're talking about legacy, we're talking about five generations of my family went to Harvard. That's not going to apply particularly to African-American people in the United States context, because African-American people five generations ago and sooner than that were banned, prohibited, restrictive, actively and violently prohibited from attending such colleges, right? So then she pointed out that if you're going to say that, you know, race-based admission decisions are not um, relevant, then how essentially can legacy admissions still continue mm. when we know that that advantages and privileges white people, which so on its face, it's not about race, but it's absolutely about race because of the history of this country. So anyway, that is my hell nah to those cases. And I feel very, very um, pessimistic that uh, affirmative action is going to survive Um, We know that Chief Justice John Roberts has previously said that the only way to prevent race discrimination is to stop discriminating on the basis of race while on its face and at a very surface level. Sure, that makes sense, Mm -hmm. Um, but it just doesn't pay any attention to the the history of racism in this country that has created inequitable and unequal playing fields for students of color. 
Um, right. So that statement yes, just yes, yes. assumes everything is equal when it absolutely is not. Anyway, that was my little three minute diatribe against those cases. If you want to know more, there are plenty of resources out there and I'm happy to refer you to them, but pay attention. Mm-hmm. This one is going to mm-hmm. come down next summer, probably the result. And I don't think it's going to be good. So big yeah. up, big up hell nah to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and Robert's, you know, what I think is really interesting about that point that you're bringing up is that that assertion of John Roberts, you're right, on its face would make a lot of sense if we were starting from the same place. But we're exactly. not starting exactly. at the same place. We are midstream in history. And so just the notion of that makes it seem as if history doesn't matter. And it does. Matter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, and he also was the author of the um opinion, the name of which I'm blanking on, that overturned essentially overturned the Voting Rights Act, right? Because racism is racism is not a thing anymore. Cue all of the states that have now since enacted voter disenfranchisement um practices like that are like race neutral but are basically racist. So anywho. Yes, 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 exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, look, let me tell you all about this. Hell yeah. That literally just dropped today on Black Enterprise. I had to share it with you. So two Black men who are social justice advocates own the trademark for the phrase white lives matter. All right. All right. So now before y'all get all upset about it, hold on, hold on. There's a there's a method to the madness. So, of course, we know Kanye West keeps putting his foot in his mouth on so many different things, whether it's uh, anti-Semitism or a a litany of things. And one of the things I think is interesting is that the phrase started to gain popularity when he wore this hoodie that had the the phrase White Lives Matter on um, the back of it at the Paris Fashion Show. We know that uh, Fashion Week in Paris is a big thing globally, so it's not as if it wouldn't go unnoticed. It, It would certainly be noticed there. And so anyhow, um, (laughs) I guess he thought he was going to trademark the phrase and profit from the phrase and so forth. But what's interesting is that two Black men, uh, Ramsey's Jaw and Quentin Ward, who they're the hosts of Civic Cipher. And so it's this radio podcast show that focuses on racial justice. They're out in Arizona. I can't wait to even see where they are, Lisa, because I know that we're going for outspoken. And so I want to see if I can track them down. But anyway, um, they own the trademark to White Lives Matter. And what I think was so interesting about this story is that the trademark application was filed in October. It could be a few years before it's resolved, but at least they filed the paperwork first in order to claim the trademark. And what's so interesting about this is the whole point of this was they, the person that originally filed for the trademark in 2020 did so for the purposes of protecting Black people. It was for the purposes of making sure that the phrase white lives matter wouldn't fall into the wrong hands. Mm, okay. Now, that to me is so profound because again, Lisa, when I think about privilege. The privilege in that is white people or privileged people don't have to think constantly about how to protect themselves. And the mere fact that Black men, and then originally uh, um, the original Black man that submitted the paperwork, the mere fact that they had to think about how we can protect ourselves and our community 
that to me feels like a lot of emotional labor that feeds into battle fatigue and things that white folks don't have to do. Able-bodied people don't have to do. All the privileged folks don't have to do. And so knowing that that Black people and other people have to function from defense mode constantly, to me, is just mind-blowing. I'm grateful that they did it. That is like genius. But I wish that genius wasn't necessary right. Right. in this context. I mean, they're thinking long-term, aren't they? I mean, they're really yes. thinking like this could spiral into something really nasty and really harmful. So how do we get in on the front end and prevent it from even going there? So they talk about strategy. Yes. I don't know whether that's yes. a disruption strategy because as you say, it's about reducing harm. But I mean, they're they're thinking worst case scenario over time and they're stepping in at the front end. So that's also mm-hmm. something I think that's really important to point out. And they, you're right. They shouldn't have to, right? Right, right. Exactly. And and so just the notion that they had to think that far down the road, you know, I, that's one thing that, Lisa, we have kind of talked about, but I think it's showing up in a different way here. How often underrepresented, disenfranchised, oppressed people don't get to just live they have to constantly think about strategy of protecting oneself in order to live. So, you know, it's kind of like what we talked about, Lisa, this was a while ago um, where I asked you, um, you know, tell me about your process of going into a convenience store to buy a drink or something. You, You gave me a very simple process. I walk in, I pick what I want. I go to the front, I pay for it. I walk out. no, Black Shauna has to strategize, okay, I'm not going to put my hands in my pockets. I have to go get the drink. I go pay for the drink. I ask for a receipt and a bag in case I'm stopped when I leave out because I want to be able to prove that I actually bought it and didn't steal it. All of that, even on a micro level, is strategy of protection. And it's just a shame that anybody has to deal with that. But at the very same time, damn, that's genius. (laughs) Okay, so I feel like... There is a hell yeah in here, right? The hell yeah is that these guys did that, even though I feel like there's some hell nah. There's there's definitely shades of hell nah with this one. I know, right? Should that be a hell maybe? Maybe that's a hell maybe. Maybe that's a hell maybe. But it's, mm. there's definitely a clear component that is a hell yeah, good for you, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well done, gentlemen. Um, I hope that we cross paths one day, especially since now we know you're in Arizona. I hope we cross paths. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging genetics and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. I love the meal recommendations that come with the analysis. It prompted me to add salmon into my meal rotations and I am loving it. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. That's insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and then use the code feisty at checkout. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Millie Perry. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social media 
at Try to Defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women and Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.